Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now, you're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Get off my lawn. I'm not talking about quality control, get the coffee, um, you know, mimeograph, and I'm exaggerating, you don't mimeograph anymore. I do have to say this, you brought back the memory for me of the smell of the mimeographed quiz page that used to be distributed <laughs> in yeah. school. There are people in the audience who will know that smell, you kind of pick it up a little bit and you get a whiff of it before you, you fail your quiz as I used to do. That was awesome. What movie was that from? That was great. Well done, EJ. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, 1982, quite possibly. That was a long time ago, 40 years to be exact. Peter King, Mike Florio here with you for a lot less than 40 years. It may feel like 40 years at some point over the course of the next two hours, but we're going to talk plenty of things happening in the National Football League. Peter, I say good morning to you. Welcome back. How's everything? Everything is going okay, Mike. I am actually today on my way to Columbus, Ohio. I'm going to emcee a banquet in Columbus tonight for the retirement of Ohio, Ohio University football coach Frank Solich. So I am actually. Um, I go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say I'm uh, I'm leaving here, going there, and looking forward to that tonight with my with a few of my old Bobcat friends. Wasn't Frank Solich the successor to Tom Osborne at Nebraska? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then I forget whatever happened there. Maybe he was fired. I don't know. At Nebraska, if you don't win a championship, you you have a short shelf life. And we Bobcats at Ohio University were very glad to have him. And he retired as the winningest coach in the history of the MAC. So a uh, football coach. So. Anyway, it'll be good to see him tonight. And yes, kids, the same kids out there who don't know what a mimeograph is, there was a time when Nebraska was actually a college football power. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe, yeah. 
But it's true. There was such a time. It was Nebraska and Oklahoma. Those were the two. That was the game to end all games, Peter, Nebraska and Oklahoma. Even though the final score would be 7-6, to six, it was still the game of the season. Hey, look, and also one of the great games of all time in the Orange Bowl, Nebraska and Miami, uh, with uh, I think that one ended 31-30 to 30 or something like that. But, I mean, Nebraska was king. And it just goes to show you that how the landscape in college football has really changed massively. And honestly, it's migrated pretty much from you know, the Midwest and the upper Midwest to the South, you know, because now it's, it's the SEC. It's, you know, it's Alabama. It's, you know, it's all the SEC schools and then it's Clemson. But it's, it, it, it's, it's so interesting to look back at that period of time because every time Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas lined up, it was a mega game. And uh, so, yeah, times have changed. And it is Columbus Day here on PFT Live because as you head there tonight, I am going to Columbus, Ohio tomorrow morning to go see my new great-nephew, Miles. So our paths may potentially cross. You never know. There's a Starbucks on the outskirts of town that we both may say, I think I know that guy. That could happen tomorrow. We'll see. Stay tuned. We shall see. Um, I'll I'll be out of there fairly early, so – Uh, I'll wave to you on my way out of town. All right. Good deal. Uh, Let's get to it. And yesterday ended up being another monumental day for the National Football League, although we'd already crossed the bridge as it relates to a head coach, a former head coach, filing a lawsuit against the NFL alleging racial discrimination in the hiring, compensation, and retention of black head coaches. Yesterday was the day that we expected. We didn't know the names until yesterday. Two additional plaintiffs join Brian Flores in his lawsuit against the NFL. Three more teams are added as defendants. And the decisions of Steve Wilkes, who still has a job in the NFL as a defensive coach with the Carolina Panthers, and Ray Horton, who currently is out of the NFL, another act of courage, another step toward maybe more coaches, realizing there's both strength and safety in numbers, and coaches pushing Arguments armed with evidence, presumably, that will show that for very different reasons, Steve Wilkes and Ray Horton, very different cases. But at the end of the day, they believe that they were wronged on the basis of skin color. And that is something the NFL is fervently trying to address. And as the NFL, in the one hand, is trying to deal with the deeper issues that it knows that it has and has had for decades, on the other hand, It's now going to be trying to fend off a lawsuit that has been brought by three individuals plus a class action involving all other similarly situated folks who have suffered a similar outcome, whether it is not being hired, not being fairly paid or being held to a different standard when the time comes to determine whether or not they keep the job, Peter. Mike, I wonder if the NFL would look at this suit after reading the Ray Horton, Mike Malarkey stuff in the amended lawsuit. I wonder if they'd look at this suit now and say it is, quote, without merit, end quote. And, you know, because obviously when when this first surfaced, less than two hours after this incendiary lawsuit was filed by 
Brian Flores a few weeks ago. The NFL issued a statement that said it was, quote, without merit, end quote. And there's no way they could have had time to read it all by then. It just, and, and that's when I said, okay, yeah, that's, that's a real trustworthy organization that'll say a lawsuit within 10 minutes after it comes out is without merit. So, Mike, I, I think that the most interesting and cogent and a compelling piece that is in this lawsuit, which I read last night, is the Ray Horton, Mike Malarkey uh, uh, information in there, claims, the claims, that Mike Malarkey on a podcast, a recent podcast, said he basically said he felt ashamed for participating in what he, what he basically admitted was a sham. He was told before he got the Titans coaching job in 2016 that uh, he was going to get the job. We just have to fulfill these requirements and, and interview a couple of black coaches now. And what was also interesting is that basically Ray Horton was called one day when he was in Arizona and he had to get on a red-eye flight to Nashville. I'm sure it was a connection. He had to get on a red eye and be in Nashville and do his interview the next day. So, you know, what was the rush? I mean, you know, and, and that to me, that story right there gives this suit some legs. And that was a moment when I listened to that podcast. It is the Steelers, what's the name of it? Some the, the Steelers, Steelers Realm. Realm. Steelers Realm podcast, September 2020. And it was the answer that obviously had impact, but the setup to me was even more compelling because this wasn't part of some back and forth regarding the circumstances surrounding his hiring in Tennessee. This wasn't the end result of an interrogation of Mike Malarkey, where he eventually says, you can't handle the truth. This was a very broad and open-ended question. And Mike Malarkey, it's almost like he had it ready to go, that he was waiting for the moment to bear his soul about the one major professional regret from all of his years in the National Football League. So let's hear the question and the answer from Mike Malarkey. Steelers Realm podcast, September of 2020, regarding what ultimately was the biggest regret of his coaching career. Well, Mike, if you could turn back the clock, where would, uh, yeah, I probably hate these questions, but would there be anything during your coaching career that you might have done differently or changed? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll tell you guys this. Uh, I've always prided myself in doing the right thing um, in this business, and I can't say that's true about everybody in this business it's a it's a it's a, it's a very cutthroat business and a lot of guys will tell you that but uh, i allowed myself uh, at one point when i was in tennessee uh, to get caught up in something i i regret and i still regret it but uh, the ownership there uh, amy adams trunk and her family came in and, and told me i was going to be the head coach in 2016 uh, before they went through the the rooney rule and so i sat there knowing i was the head coach in 16 as they went through this fake hiring process, knowing I knowing a lot of the coaches that they were interviewing, knowing how much they prepared to go through those interviews. 
knowing that, that everything they could do and they had no chance of getting that job. And actually the GM, John Robinson, he was in on the interview with me. He's, he had no idea why he's interviewing me that I have the job already. And I feel like, you know, I regret that's because I pride myself in my, my kids first that they do the right thing. And I always said that to the players and here I am the head guy not doing it. And I've regretted that since then. It was a the wrong thing to do. I, I'm sorry I did that. Um, but it was not the way to go about it. Should have interviewed like everybody else and got hired because of the interview, not not early on. So that's that's probably my biggest regret. That really is amazing, Peter. And for me, as Thursday afternoon went on, I became more and more impressed by Mike Malarkey's decision to say what so many people have believed and assumed, but there's never proof of it. Nobody ever comes out and says it. We get the feeling, we get the sense, we have the suspicion that a lot of these interviews are shams, that a lot of these jobs are predetermined before they even begin the interview process. And if other coaches were so willing to be truthful about their own experiences, they would probably say similar things. And the fact that Mike Malarkey did, I know he's retired now. He doesn't have any skin in the game. He doesn't have to worry about being frozen out. He doesn't have to worry about getting cold shoulder by anybody. He doesn't have to worry about anything other than telling the truth. It's still courageous. There's plenty of retired coaches who could come out and say something similar, I believe, to what Mike Malarkey said, and they haven't. He did. And I got a lot of respect for him for doing the right thing and saying what needed to be said. And... I can only hope that it inspires others who know the truth about the circumstances of their hiring to come forward and do the same thing, Peter. Mike, I think that many times when a team enters a coaching search, they know how it's going to end at the end of the coaching search. You know, and I'll give you an example this year that that the New Orleans Saints were pretty sure that they were going to give Dennis Allen the job you know, at the end of the search. I don't believe they ever told Dennis Allen that, but the writing was on the wall. You know, they had spoken so highly of Dennis Allen. But what was interesting about that coaching search, and Mickey Loomis, the general manager, told me about this afterwards, is that they had, uh, they basically had a couple of coaches who came in during the course of the interview that really gave them pause and really had them thinking about what they should do. So, and I only bring that up because I think very many times a team has it in their mind who they want to hire, but then you go through the process. And even if you enter the process saying, well, we want to hire Dennis Allen, someone is really going to have to be a lot better than Dennis Allen. That's fair. That's fair. That's human nature. But then Aaron Glenn, the defensive coordinator of the Detroit Lions, who uh, formerly coached on the Saints staff under Sean Payton, basically uh, formed in the, you know, sort of in the image of Bill Parcells because that was uh, one of his coaches in the NFL. But I only bring that up because everybody would understand if there's a guy on your staff who you really like a lot uh, and, you know, there's a good chance he's going to get the job. But we want to see what's out there. And so 
that to me is the way you go about these things rather than to say, yeah, well, the fix is in. And first of all, why anybody in that organization would have ever told Mike Malarkey that is just, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's not very smart. It's not very smart legally in the first place. And it's just not very smart, period. Because if you're going to do that about the head coach, you know, are you going to make other decisions that you already know the answer before you ask the question? And so to me, the Titans are in a very, very bad light here. And uh, this is clearly going to be a huge part of the case. I mean, Mike, look, the most worrisome thing about this case, in my opinion, for the competitive balance of the NFL are the Stephen Ross allegations, where Brian Flores said Ross offered him $100,000 per game basically to lose in 2019 so they would have the first pick in a quarterback-rich draft in 2020. Obviously, Flores, he claims, didn't go along with it. If there's if there's a way to prove that, if that could ever be proven, that would be so dangerous that, in my opinion, Ross would certainly have his team stripped from him. But I just think in general, even though that's a huge part of this lawsuit, the other part that is really going to have long-lasting effects is if they can prove before the interview process started, that the fix was in before a job was ever interviewed for. And you spoke to how stupid it would have been to do that. From a legal standpoint, I think the fact that someone would do that speaks to the hubris that previously existed, that the NFL never would have dreamed that any coach would file this lawsuit. The facts, the evidence, the hiring practices, the long-sorted history that is outlined in excruciating detail in the 100-page Brian Flores amended complaint. It's always been there, but it took a Brian Flores to get it started, and I think the NFL believed that would never happen. So when you think we're never going to get sued over this, that sets the stage for saying things that are extremely stupid from a legal standpoint because you believe there's never going to be a reckoning. Now, for their part... The Titans say what we would expect them to say, but we still need to be fair and balanced here and say that the Titans, and I quote, claim that our 2016 head coach search was an open and competitive process during which we conducted in-person interviews with four candidates and followed all NFL rules. The organization was undecided on its next head coach during the process and made its final decision after consideration of all four candidates following the completion of the interviews. Okay, fine. But you know what, Peter? And I got to give Shereen Williams credit. She wasn't even, wasn't even working for PFT at the time. And she remembered the stories we had from 2016 that I wrote that I have forgotten. Go ahead and play the piano music. I have forgotten in my advancing age that I had two different stories about this. Actually, there were more than two, but these are the two big ones. Ray Horton was insulted by how the Titans handled his opportunity, according to former Fritz Pollard Alliance Executive Director John Wooten, who said it at the time. Now, I remember Horton calling me up and saying, I'm not insulted, I'm not insulted, I'm not insulted. And I think he was concerned about treading lightly because he still hoped to be part of the broader NFL machine. And he realized if you start poking the shield in the eye, you have a problem. That was my opinion based upon those interactions. And then Steve Underwood, 
the guy who had the greatest all-time mustache in the history of facial hair, he made the comment back in 2016, and this one is a stunner to me. And again, Peter, it speaks to the hubris that is associated with never believing there's going to be accountability in the legal system. Somewhere during the process, this is Underwood, 2016, somewhere during the process, I think it coalesced for Amy Adams Strunk, and she had made the decision. She already knew Mike Malarkey. She had a comfort level with Mike, but she wanted to reach out and look around to make sure there was not any other viable candidates for her in terms of our club and where we were going. Now, that's kind of what you were saying about Mickey Loomis and the Saints, but when you combine that with what Malarkey said, it's clear this was done. This was over. This was just, let's check some boxes and let's do the thing we've already decided to do. And Mike, look, I think the one thing that, it, it, that discovery is going to find, I think when I read this last night, the one thing I kept thinking of is what other coaches, particularly maybe retired coaches or coaches who are currently unemployed who doubt that they're going to get in, going to get back in. Um, will any of them join this suit? And do they have stories to tell? Now, in the Ray Horton situation, it isn't just his word against theirs. In the Ray Horton situation, he has someone to corroborate what he thought was a very fishy uh, interview process. And when that happened, and then when Mike, Mike Malarkey spoke up, that gives that more legs than I think anything in the, in the document has right now. So the question now is, Mike, are there others? Are there others who will join this lawsuit and will come forward and tell their stories? And can those stories, if there are any, be corroborated? Well, and that's why I'm very curious, Peter, as to whether there will be a groundswell on two fronts. From the perspective of the individuals who believe that they have been wronged and now feel whether it's emboldened or whether it's called to stand up and join shoulder to shoulder Brian Flores, Steve Wilkes and Ray Horton. And on the other side of the coin, will others who know how the sausage got made, like Mike Malarkey, be emboldened and feel a responsibility to come forward and tell their story as well. Could there be a sea change in the attitude of, I don't know anything, I'm just here to do my job, I'm, I'm not here to make waves? Because obviously that mindset has been one of the recipes for sustained success in the NFL, which is a small body of 32 companies, and it's one industry, and it's all very tightly wound and controlled. If you start making trouble you start losing opportunities. That's been the concern. Maybe that ends now. And as I said earlier, there's both strength and safety in numbers, whether it's the people who are saying I was wronged or the people saying I know what happened was wrong. That's what's going to be very interesting to see as the case goes forward. And you mentioned the discovery process. I really hope these cases get to play out in open court with media access and a judge and a jury eventually deciding it. 
because job number one for the NFL and the teams in a situation like this, and this needs to be said over and over and over again, what the NFL always does when it is sued or one of the teams faces a claim like this, how do we get it into our private arbitration system not the usual private arbitration system that american employers love to use where you send it to the american arbitration association or some similar group where there is a lawyer former lawyer retired judge whoever who serves as the person who makes the decision and is typically far more conservative with the outcome and more employer friendly than a jury would be not that kind of arbitration this is the nfl's rigged kangaroo court and that's exactly what it is When these private arbitrations are resolved by the commissioner or his designee. Either way, you're not getting justice in the NFL's hand-picked, rigged kangaroo court. It's not happening. And if the NFL truly believes these cases are without merit, if the NFL truly believes that it has a leg to stand on, that it has no shame about what it did or why it did it, why does it always, Peter, Go straight for the rigged kangaroo court of the NFL to decide these controversies instead of letting that. You should be proud of what you did. You should have no qualms about standing up and saying, we will defend any charges. We will answer any allegations. We will prove that what we did was right. And we respect the rights of those who think they were wronged to have an open public hearing before an independent tribunal, not the rigged kangaroo court of Roger Goodell. The reason is, and you know the reason, because the NFL does not want to air even partially dirty laundry, even just, you know, smudged laundry in public. Because if someone hears Brian Flores sitting on the witness stand and saying, Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, offered me $100,000 It happened at this place. It happened at this time. I distinctly remember it. I came out and told this person and that person and blah, blah, blah. So Stephen Ross is then going to get up and say, this is a total fabrication. The conversation never existed. But there are going to be many, many, once they see Brian Flores sworn under oath, say that in court. There are going to be many people who are going to believe him. And there's going to be outrage. Similarly, with, you know, the Tennessee Titans. You know, when Mike Malarkey stands up or when his words are played from that podcast in court, okay? And and when Ray Horton gets on the stand and describes exactly what happened. Then, look, whether or not, whatever the jury would find there, Mike, there would be a lot of the American public who would say, geez, you know what? I knew the NFL was dirty. And now I've heard it. Now I've heard it with my own ears. And it's proven to me the NFL is dirty. And so that's why the NFL doesn't want to be in open court. And and that's why that one of the other reasons is you think they want Amy Adams Strunk deposed, John Robinson deposed, <laughs> Stephen Ross, all these people. I mean... Do they want those to be heard? Do they want that testimony to be heard? No. They want this done under a rock, which is why all the employment contracts, you know, that you sign as a head coach in the NFL 
have those little clauses in there that talk about the arbitration process, uh, you know, and not having any case if there are disagreements heard in an open courtroom. And the fact that Ray Horton was already working for the Titans at the time he interviewed for the Titans head coaching job makes it a lot easier for the Titans to make the argument that you've signed your contract. Any and all grievances, claims, et cetera, go to an arbitration ultimately resolved by the commissioner or his designee. You hit on a very important point at the end, though. These owners do not want to be questioned under oath by anyone at a deposition where there's a lawyer who has power over them. These are incredibly rich and powerful people over whom no one has power. The last thing they want to do is submit themselves to a setting where they have to answer the question and they can't evade the question and they have to give the information. And eventually they're sitting in front of someone in a black robe who doesn't work for them. In the court of Roger Goodell, the person who is presiding over the arbitration is on your payroll. Quite a different dynamic in that setting. You're not going to get treated like Jack Nicholson and a few good men in that setting. You're going to have to answer the questions in court. Before Goodell, it's not going to be the same experience. And that's why it's so... And Peter, part of my mission here and I hope others will join me in this so I'm not the only one who's saying it before I get squashed like a bug by Big Shield, but the mere fact that it exists, it underscores your point. You you nailed it. Exactly why they don't want to do it. But that in and of itself is problematic. The NFL knows that its laundry is always dirty. There's no clean laundry to be displayed to a judge or a jury. We are presuming that whenever one of these claims is made, they got something. So we're just going to take care of it in a setting where no one's ever going to know quite what they may have. And, and Mike, look, you know, I do think that the one game changer that, as, as I said before, the one game changer in this lawsuit is now uh, one of the plaintiffs, in essence, has someone to back him up. And that someone to back him up happens to be the coach who got the job. And so that to me, that, that honestly, and Mike, look, as sensational it was, as it was to have the Bill Belichick text messages originally, as sensational as it was for Brian Flores to say that I got offered $100,000 by, you know, by Stephen Ross per game and, and you know, and the and the and the Tom Brady or whoever it was, famous quarterback coming Brady. on the boat. All those stories were great stories. Now we have something that to me is absolutely totally actionable. You know, we have the Emperor with no clothes on. And if 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 they if if that's the only thing, if that's the biggest thing they have in this in this suit, it is still a very big thing. And that's why, to me, this lawsuit changed materially on Thursday when the Ray Horton charges were added to it. Now, here's where I pour a little cold water on this, unfortunately, because 
if the case has merit, it should play out in open court, should be decided in open court, should have a fair opportunity in open court. Ray Horton may have a problem. Statute of limitations. Four years. He's beyond the window. Now, the argument will be, I believe, that Ray Horton wasn't aware of what had happened until the Mike Malarkey comments were made in 2020. That's when he's on notice. Public comments made by Mike Malarkey in September of 2020, that's when the clock would start to tick. That would be the argument. The problem is the quote that I read earlier, the notion that John Wooten, the former director of the Fritz Pollard Alliance, said that Ray Horton was insulted at the time. The NFL will argue, I guarantee you, wherever this plays out, Threshold argument from the NFL as it relates to Ray Horton is you blew your statute of limitations. You had four years after January of 2016. That expired more than two years ago. You don't even get to the merits of the case. Trust me, they'll do that. If they can avoid ever getting to the merits of the case on this one or on any case, they will. And what the NFL will essentially be saying is you should have known in January 16 it was a sham interview although it wasn't, you should have known in January 2016 that we had handpicked Mike Malarkey to be the head coach of the team and all of the rest of this was just window dressing, even though it wasn't. They'll argue that. They'll do that because the merits don't matter at that point. We'll assume everything that he says is true. He's failed to file the lawsuit in time. So let's just remember that because I guarantee you that's going to be part of what the NFL raises, whether it's in federal court or whether it's in the NFL's rigged kangaroo court. One way or the other, that's going to be one of the first things that the NFL will argue as it relates to Ray Horton's claim. Yeah, and I think my point on that would be that if Ray Horton didn't know until uh, Mike Malarkey said what he said, then you know I'm sure that there are different judges who would view that differently, which is why, as you say, Mike, It's a lot better if this gets in a courtroom rather than in the arbitration process. Because in the arbitration process, there's a very good chance that it just gets quashed because you didn't uh, comply with the statute of limitations. But again, you know, if, if, if Ray Horton doesn't know, if Ray Horton doesn't know until that, until that comes out, why should he be penalized for that? Well, you know, he shouldn't be penalized for that. He should still be able to get his day in court to uh, to file a legal complaint over what, again, if 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 it's true, is a very damning claim. And and I'll say this, Mike: How would you like to be the NFL, who basically and and the Tennessee Titans and their management, if you get off? on a technicality, basically, where everybody said, oh, yeah, we know what happened, but uh, we just couldn't prove it because of the statute of limitations. But we know it happened, and everybody knows it happened. If, indeed, there's nothing more than, uh, you know, a statement refuting it, you know, you've got the head coach saying it. So I think my point will be that if you're the Titans and – somehow, some way, this isn't true at all, okay? If it just isn't true, you want to be to have your name cleared. You really want to have your name cleared instead of 
<coughs> basically having everyone just assume that you're guilty. So I think that's a dangerous part of this, too. It is from a PR standpoint, but I know how the lawyers will handle it. The lawyers will say, we have to make this argument. We have to win at all costs. And the client will say, hey, we just did what the lawyers told us to do, even though the client ultimately controls the relationship. They always hide behind what the lawyers tell them to do, especially when the decision recommended by the lawyers would be an unpopular one. But that statute of limitations defense can be waived, doesn't even have to be asserted. But again, as you said, plays out very differently in court. And it plays out in the NFL's rigged kangaroo court system that it tries to get every claim into. Let's pivot now to the Arizona Cardinals. Steve Wilkes was the head coach of the team for one season. His claim is that he was a bridge coach. And the notion that was crafted in the original Brian Flores lawsuit was that some black coaches find themselves in a spot where they basically were selected to be a short-term coach, knowing on the way in the David Cully phenomenon. Because we all kind of believe after the fact that the Texans hired David Cully with the goal of quickly firing David Cully and then hiring the person they really wanted to be the coach of the team, which I believe was Josh McCown. And I believe they would have hired Josh McCown, but for the Brian Flores lawsuit. I digress. Steve Wilkes, allegedly a bridge coach for the Arizona Cardinals in 2018. This one to me is fascinating, Peter, not because of what we already know, but because of what we may learn again, if it plays out in an open court system and not in the NFL's rigged kangaroo court, because one of the most compelling facts in all of this is the comparison of the treatment of Steve Wilkes and Steve Kime, the two Steves, Steve Kime, 2018, DUI conviction, suspension that overlapped with training camp. And on the surface, Wilkes argument is I was basically operating with one hand tied behind my back. I don't have a general manager. Why are you holding me to this high standard and firing me at the end of the year and not Steve Kime, who's the one that created this mess? Kime had one year left on his contract. Wilkes had three. It would have been cheaper to just fire Kime and hire a new GM at a deeper level. We're going to see an aggressive attempt to prove, and you've already seen the hints of it in the lawsuit, that Steve Kime's suspension was not honored by Michael Bidwell, the owner of the Arizona Cardinals, that there was communication and involvement by Steve Kime, maybe every single day in training camp, that even though he was suspended, he was still performing the job. He was still involved. That is not quite the Stephen Ross $100,000 per loss offer, but it does delve into something different than the discriminatory aspects of this lawsuit. This is, did an NFL franchise comply with the suspension that was levied upon the team's general manager, or was there some effort to circumvent it? That is going to be a fascinating wrinkle to all of this, and another reason why we can only hope that it plays out publicly so we can all find out. What happened instead of it all happening secretly and we have no access to how any of it plays out? You know, I think the difficulty that Wilkes is going to have in this particular case is that, you know, whereas Wilkes got this job and was the head coach for one unsuccessful season, 
Kime had been with the organization for 19 years at that point. He'd been the general manager for five years. And early on in his general manager duties, he made a trade which turned out to be a great trade of a seventh-round draft pick for Carson Palmer. I think it was a seventh. Seventh-round draft pick for Carson Palmer. And a year after that trade, uh, or a little more than a year, the Arizona Cardinals are in the NFC Championship game. So I think what Steve Keim and what Michael Bidwill will claim is that Keim had some currency in the bank with us uh, after five years being general manager, knowing we might need to rebuild in the future uh, or, or, you know, whatever we would do. We trust Kime based on his history and his resume and his 19 years working for the team. We trust that he's going to be able to do it. Now, you can always make the claim that anybody who gets a, uh, what is the, the severe DUI called, whatever it's called, the excessive DUI, um, you know, when you're more than twice extreme uh, the, the level, extreme DUI, yeah because that's what he got. You could easily make the argument that that should disqualify you from working for wherever you work. And I get it. And if that's going to be your case, then so be it. But the fact is, Kime was able to retain his job. And I think what the Cardinals will claim is that the two things that that Wilkes claims, one is that he uh, encouraged them to trade up and to try to get Josh Allen at quarterback. And instead, they traded up and got uh, Josh Rosen at quarterback and what a disaster that was. And look, obviously, we can all see that was, a, that was you know, getting Josh Rosen was a bad call by them. But, you know, any legal person is going to say, well, Mr. Wilkes, you're not the general manager of the team. And, you know, you can't, you have no, you basically have no standing to tell them who to trade and everything. It's not your job. It's the general manager's job. And if he screwed it up, that's the way life goes. But, but I do think the one part of this that, that, the, that the suit does bring into play is how often a black head coach basically has been a bridge coach fired after one year when it was a debacle anyway. You know, David Culley could bring up the same thing with the Houston Texans. The Steve Kime arrest happened July 4, 2018. Blood alcohol concentration of 0.19%. Extreme DUI kicks in above 0.15. The legal limit in every state is 0.08%. There was a five-week suspension and a $200,000 fine announced by the Cardinals, but the league was involved in that. And this is one of those, Peter, where you've got the lawsuit, you've got the claims in the lawsuit, you've got circumstances connected to the underlying facts that can create chaos for the organization. That's what's fascinating about this, that in defending against Steve Wilkes' lawsuit, the Cardinals will have to deal with this collateral issue of whether and to what extent 
the terms of the suspension were violated by the organization in order to try to get business done. There's also a little element of the tanking in one of the allegations from Steve Wilkes, even though he's not making anything close to the kinds of claims for now that Brian Flores is making, the idea that Steve Kime and Michael Bidwell were upset after the team had a late season victory over the Green Bay Packers because they coveted that first overall pick in the draft. Once they knew they were done, they didn't want to win games. Now, remember, when Brian Flores first filed his lawsuit, there was no specific claim tied to that allegation. It was just dropped out there without any legal theory. Now the legal theory has been added. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's possible Steve Wilkes could, at some point down the road, amend his complaint to argue some sort of whistleblower violation or some sort of public policy violation that resulted from the Cardinals wanting him to lose, Wilkes refusing to lose, even though they ultimately lost enough games to get the first overall pick, but that being a factor in the final decision-making process by the Cardinals to say, we're done with this guy. He doesn't play ball the way we want him to play ball. He doesn't do what we want him to do. And some would argue Steve Keim has lasted as long as he has in the Cardinals organization because he knows when to do what the boss wants him to do. And Wilkes arguably didn't do what the boss wanted him to do when he was only a one-year employee of the team, Peter. I mean, look, there are going to be all kinds of charges and counter charges. And when Wilkes left, I remember the the sort of um, the I don't want to say the drumbeat, but you know the, the the Cardinals' claim at the time when he left is that basically either we weren't making the progress we thought we were, or we should have been. Uh, you, you know, we wanted a different style of coach. Whatever, whatever was said afterwards, it's what you say to justify a decision that looks absolutely terrible. And so the Cardinals now are probably going to have to, if this ever were an open court and Michael Bidwell gets up or Steve Kime gets up, why did you fire, uh, you know, Steve Wilkes after one year? It'll be very interesting to see what their, uh, what their uh, justification is. Keeping in mind that their quarterback, Josh Allen, you know, has basically now, I think, been with four or five teams. And he's had an opportunity to rebuild his career and even be just a quality backup. And he can't even stay on a team because of that, you know, as that job. And so I think Wilkes would have a real interesting case here in saying that, you know, uh, Vince Lombardi or Bill Walsh couldn't have succeeded in this job. I got one for you. I got a who said it. I think we played that game yesterday, Sims and me, draft edition. Here's a who said it, late 2018 edition. We all would want him back. I love Steve Wilkes. Great dude. We play hard for him. That's the team, not just me speaking on it. Who said it? Chandler Jones. Larry Fitzgerald. Even better. Wow. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so good luck. 
Arizona Cardinals. Let's do this because we got plenty to say on Brian Flores, and I apologize in advance to the control room for not continuing, but I think it's probably a good time to take a break. When we return, we're going to focus on the Brian Flores aspect of the amended complaint, his new claims against the Dolphins, and the new team that he has brought to the litigation. We'll discuss that when PFT Live continues right after this. Around any corner, within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, the threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. Brian Flores' amended complaint includes an expansion of his claims against the Miami Dolphins. In the original complaint, the allegation was made that he was offered $100,000 for each loss in 2019. At the time when owner Stephen Ross wanted to tank the whole season and get the first pick in the 2020 draft. It really wasn't connected to anything. Now it is. There's a whistleblower claim. Basically, Brian Ross raised the red flag, sounded the alarm internally that this was happening, and he fell out of favor because of it. Key allegation from the complaint, Mr. Flores memorialized Mr. Ross's desire to have Miami lose games in the December 4, 2019 memo that was provided to GM Chris Greer, Chief Executive Officer Tom Garfinkel, and Senior VP of Football Administration Brandon Shore. In this letter, Mr. Flores detailed the toxicity that existed within the organization and explained the unreasonable position he was being placed in by team ownership and upper management. Powerful stuff. And obvious question, Peter. What happened on December 4 when Chris Greer and others saw what had been reduced to writing? How did they handle it? Did they send it to the league? Did they investigate it? Did they bring in Brian Flores and ask him more questions? Did they act like it never even happened? Did they chastise Brian Flores? You know, you shouldn't be doing things like this if you want to be employed here for more than one season. Not that they would be that direct, but who the hell knows? The hubris that comes from never having to worry about being sued causes people to say and do stupid things, as we discussed in the context of Ray Horton and Mike Malarkey. But that really does fascinate me. It's more than two years ago. He sends that memo. What is done with it? And what do the Dolphins do by way of alerting the league at the time to the fact that the head coach is making this allegation internally? And Mike, when I saw that, my first thought was, wouldn't you think that the team wouldn't want to alert the league about that? Obviously, if, if you know, with that with that document, wouldn't you think that they would want to go to Flores and have a conversation about that and basically say, this is an absolutely no win situation? a no-win situation um we deny that it happened you say that it did happen uh it's your word against his if indeed it ever comes to that my feeling when i read this was that if there was any reaction from the team the reaction would have been it's a dead-end street brian it's a dead-end street nothing good is going to come of this 
Maybe that's the case. Regardless, I want to know what they did. What did they do to mobilize in response? Or did they do nothing? You know, ideally what they would do, and I don't mean ideally that it's the right thing to do, but understanding how organizations like this work, you bring in an independent lawyer who's bought and paid for by the team and is smart enough to understand what the team really wants the outcome to be. And that person then talks to Brian Flores in a way to memorialize his story, but also asking questions in a way to kind of put him in a box, get his story locked in, maybe undermine it wherever possible that you could ask a question and get him to make an admission that that protects you against later scrutiny. That's kind of how it happens. I'm not saying it's right, but I lived in that world. I know that's how it happens when a company brings in an outside lawyer to investigate independently. There's other goals in mind here. What did they do to put this fire out? That's my question. Did they ignore the fire? Did they put it out? Did they tell the league? Now, they claim, and this was something that was told to me by someone involved in the investigation but requested anonymity, yada, 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 that they've already sent the memo to the league, but that was several weeks ago. My guess is once the $100,000 stuff hit the fan back in early February, they decided we better give everything we have on this to the league so they can properly investigate. And now the league has its investigator, Mary Jo White, looking into things. And frankly, I was told last night there's a feeling that that – and I don't know how you you reconcile this, that the, the dart's going to hit the bullseye on Ross. I don't know how you reconcile that with the urgency to defend the claims being made by Stephen, or by Brian Flores, but I digress. Uh, the bottom line is this is something we didn't know about, and it is a fascinating wrinkle to all of this as it relates to what happened afterward. How did he stay employed for two more years, and did it did it plant the seed in Stephen Ross's brain that this guy can't be the long-term coach of the team. Mike, let me ask you, I'm going to veer a little bit and ask you this question, okay? What is a more serious consequence if, uh, you know, if, if legally found to have happened? A, the Tennessee Titans basically uh, being found guilty of the fix is in. Uh, we we basically had already decided to hire the white coach and still went ahead with the sham black coach interviews, minority coach interviews. Or B, Stephen Ross found guilty of offering Brian Flores $100,000 per loss in 2018. What's, or 2019. What's worse and and I'm going to answer. I'm going to you think about that for a second. But in my opinion, as 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 sort of heinous as the Ross uh, uh, thing would be, my feeling is this lawsuit is Brian Flores brought this lawsuit because he believes, and many minority coaches believe, that they haven't gotten a fair shot over the years, and so. If they could find even one smoking gun that proves that at least in one case that the fix was in, that to me would be a lot more dangerous for the NFL. The the Ross thing to me is, and I'm not necessarily saying it's a one-off, but the Ross thing to me is almost an, an anecdotal scandal 
that really doesn't have much to do with the color of Brian Flory's skin. At least I don't think so. But the other, the other one, I think, would have more far-reaching effects. Well, I agree with you, Peter, in this respect. And determining the potential impact legally depends upon who the entity is that we're talking about. If we're talking about the league here, having the scam exposed in Tennessee gives credence to the suspicion that has long existed. And as we said earlier in the program, how many other Mike Malarkeys are out there who, if they were being truthful, would say, I got this job after multiple sham interviews. They told me ahead of time, this job is mine. That's happened time and again. Hell, look at John Gruden when he got the job with the Raiders. He had that job before they even fired Jack Del Rio. It's happened. And this proves what we've kind of believed all along. So from that perspective, yes, the NFL is looking at having years of suspicion crystallized and legitimized, and then it's got a major problem going forward, both legally and culturally within the broader NFL. Now, the NFL's exposure on the Stephen Ross allegation that he tried to tank the whole season, I keep waiting for the class action lawsuit to be filed against the NFL on behalf of everyone who bet legally in 2019 on the Dolphins, whether it's to win a game, to cover a spread, to make the playoffs, to win more than a certain number of games. There were about six states that had legalized wagering then, so it wouldn't be a huge class action. That's the NFL's civil exposure. But as it relates to who's in the biggest pot of hot water here, it's Ross. Because you don't go to jail if you did what you did and you're Amy Adams strong. Stephen Ross goes to jail for this, potentially. 18 U.S.C. Section 224, bribery and sporting contests. Whoever carries into effect, attempts to carry into effect, or conspires with any other person to carry into effect any scheme in commerce to influence in any way by bribery any sporting contest with knowledge that the purpose of such scheme is to influence by bribery that contest shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than five years. In English, if Stephen Ross did this, he could go to jail. Not that he will, but he could be prosecuted. And what happened earlier this week? Earlier this week, six attorneys general fired the ultimate shot across the bow at the NFL, saying, you people got a mess. And, you know, the way the New York Times phrased that letter, it was along the lines of an invitation to negotiate or show us you're making progress. And if you don't, we're going to investigate. When I read that letter, that's not in there. I don't know where the New York Times got that. That letter says, we're coming after you. We're going to investigate and we're going to prosecute because we're troubled by these things we're hearing about your business. So I, I guess when you consider the context where this is all happening with these six attorneys general now looking for anything they can to prosecute the NFL, I don't know, maybe they're equal. But definitely for us, it's worse because nobody in Tennessee is going to jail over this. Ross could. Look, you know, you raised the issue of the league. And um, and I just think this, Mike, you know, over the last year, let's say, there have been quite a few troubling things about the league. And in my opinion, showing that the league either has lost its moral compass or, uh, you know, is just not doing what, 
you're sort of raised to do as, uh, you know, a morally right human being. And that is, you know, the Daniel Snyder investigation and going all the way to not issuing a report after you issued telephone book size reports on Ray Rice and Tom Brady. You issue no report on something that, uh, to me, is significantly more serious, uh, even though both of the, 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 the prior two were serious. This is significantly more serious because it involves an owner, it involves multiple executives of a team, and it involves about 40 women who came forward to say, this place stinks. And there needs to be, uh, you know, an airing out of this organization. And so what happens? Uh, the story's buried. And Daniel Snyder is fined the equivalent of 2% of his team's income for the year. And given the softest suspension that anybody could ever have, which is that you know, your wife is going to be in charge and you can still obviously have conversations with her, but don't go to the office. I mean, it, it, it was terrible. It was terrible. And then we have the Deshaun Watson case. Does anybody not say, hey, look, this not only looks bad, but it is bad to not only have four teams falling all over themselves to try to trade for Deshaun Watson, but then the, the winner in the Derby gives the most generous contract in the 102-year history of the NFL and not only the most generous contract, but guarantees every dime of it. And while Patrick Mahomes' contract is 19% guaranteed, Josh Allen's contract is 39% guaranteed. Deshaun Watson hasn't even played football for a year and a half. His contract is 100% guaranteed. And look, at some point, at some point, You've just got to acknowledge, you know, this really stinks. And whether it's in a private session, whether it's just in having coffee with groups of owners, you know, to me, it is incumbent on Roger Goodell to start to talk to the owners of this team like, hey, guys, can we have a moral compass, please? Can we, can we do the right things morally now rather than what we're doing? And so, I, I don't know, that... The reason I wrote what I wrote about the Cleveland Browns and, you know, wrote a very kind of a scathing column about the Browns doing what they did in part was because of this permissive attitude by the league that as long as we're continuing to make tons of money, you guys go do whatever you want to do. We don't really care. As long as it's not against the law, okay, we, we're okay with it. Just do whatever. And people on the outside world, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, the, the uh, House Oversight Committee in Washington, they look at it and they say, what is wrong with you people? So I'm all for those airings. Uh, you know, and I hope the Attorneys General do uh, follow up on this and try to, you know, air this publicly. Peter, what I'm going to say now is something the folks out there listening and watching will probably never hear on Good Morning Football. May never hear again on Peacock because who knows, maybe I won't be back. 
But you mentioned the possibility that the NFL has lost its moral compass within the last year. I think the more accurate statement is at some point before the last year, well before possibly the last year, the NFL strategically obliterated its moral compass with a sledgehammer, all in the name of maximizing revenue. That it's no longer about doing the right thing. It's about doing the thing that makes us the most money. And as hesitant as I was back in 2014 when the storm clouds were hovering over 345 Park Avenue and people were openly calling for a change of commissioner, it's hard for me not to tie this current reality to the man who's been the commissioner since August of 2006, that he is in the ultimate act of self-preservation doing exactly what the oligarchs who own these teams and who run the league want him to do, maximizing revenue. He has a stated goal of getting the league to $25 billion per year. He had a stated goal in the early 1980s to become the commissioner of the NFL, and he succeeded. His stated goal as of 15 years ago, or maybe 13 or 12, it's at some point during his tenure, to get to $25 billion per year. That's his goal. And this is a guy who is goal-oriented and is very good at reaching his goals. So, Peter, I think that everything we're seeing now is basically the chickens coming home to roost. That the, the seeds for this were planted a long time ago. And when Mark Cuban said eight years ago, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered, I think that I assumed he was talking about the fans eventually being turned off. It's too much. It's too much. There's too much football. Thursday night. And now, you know, maybe Tuesday and Wednesday night because we found a way to pull it off during the pandemic and 17-game regular season, soon to be 18-game regular season. It's too much. The fans are going to get turned off. I think the hog gets slaughtered by the fact that others – in government, legislative, and prosecutorial, are looking at this behemoth that the NFL is becoming and saying, as the epigraph to The Godfather reads, behind every great fortune there is a crime. Or as the case may be, in front of every great fortune there is a crime. All around every great fortune there are crimes, and now they're looking for them. And I'm not saying there are crimes. I'm not saying there are crimes. We're just talking about moral compass here. It's for others to decide whether or not laws were broken. But I think what we're seeing, this critical mass that's kind of been reached after I locked the manuscript of Playmakers. I mean, it took 20 years for me to write Playmakers. I could write Playmakers 2 in two years, given everything that's gone on. This is something that didn't just happen. This is the product of something that's been simmering for 15 years. That's my take. Do you, do you want to join me in speculating on the fact that all these problems trace to the man whose name is on the football? <laughs> and with that, I, mean, I say farewell they, forever. Goodbye. They do. <laughs> no, they do recently. You know, they do recently because Roger Goodell could have done something about uh, the the oral report uh, or the verbal report with um, you know with the Washington Football Team. He could have done something about that and made it a written report, like he did with Brady and Ray Rice. Um, but he didn't, and. Why didn't he do it? I think he could. Why didn't he do it? It's Mike. I'm not sure this is a 15 year scheme. I, I, you know, but I do think, I do think, and, and, and by the way, and by the way, you know, we've talked about this before, 
But I just want to reiterate it one last time because I'm not picking on Daniel Snyder. I'm simply stating a fact. And the fact is, when I started covering the NFL in the 80s, my favorite day always was walking the last quarter mile or whatever to RFK Stadium and watching a football game there and five times during the course of the game, feeling like the stadium is shaking like it was in an earthquake because that old barn uh, shook when the crowd went crazy. And it was an event. It was a happening. It was so great. That is what happened. That's what, that's what the Washington football experience was. And now we're at the point where the Washington football experience is a boatload of empty seats, more fans rooting for the visiting team than home team, and a whole uh, you know, generation, new generation of fans who do not care about a team that just a generation ago was one of the five flagship franchises of the NFL. And it's a disgrace. The whole thing is a disgrace. And for a lot of different reasons, you know, the, the, the thing that the league should be most concerned with, however they do it, is to try to get or to force Daniel Snyder to sell this team because he's a horse crap owner. And not only on the field, but off the field. And until he's out, you're not going to see any real progress in refurbishing the name and the franchise of the Washington football team. But he was protected by the commissioner who did not apply any transparency whatsoever to the Beth Wilkinson investigation because the commissioner specifically did not ask for a written report because if he had asked for a written report, as we reported weeks ago, the written report would have included a recommendation that Daniel Snyder be required to sell the team. That would have been the bottom line from Beth Wilkinson. I think, Peter, after processing this since July 2nd of last year, talking to different people about it, this is very simple. By protecting Daniel Snyder, the commissioner protected the other owners, and that is who he is there to protect. That is who he is there to serve. I remember during the lockout in 2011, I was getting ready to interview the commissioner on this program when it was digital only on NBCSports.com, and somebody from the league office was trying to preposition me on talking points and whatnot. I was like, yeah, whatever. Uh, But one of the arguments made was, now remember, he's the commissioner for all constituencies of football from the highest level to the lowest level, the owners, the coaches, the players, the fans, the media, yada, 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 frickin' yada. And my reaction was, well, he's only got one constituency, doesn't he? The 32 owners that hired him, the 32 owners that retain him, the 32 owners that pay him and pay him and pay him and look, in addition to the $25 billion per year that he aspires the NFL to generate, he may have his own little personal aspiration of how much money he wants to eventually have in the bank, and it's worked. He has done his job well if his job is to do the bidding of the oligarchs who own the team. And again, where do you strike that balance? Who's in place to tell the owners the hard truths? What happened to Faye Vincent when he tried to do that in baseball? See, I know a little about baseball, Peter King. I know opening day was yesterday, and I know they pushed out Faye Vincent because he told them things they didn't want to hear. You tell these really rich people things they don't want to hear, they're going to find somebody else to be the one who tells them what they want to hear. So 
Again, I didn't intend. This isn't on but the you know, Mike, folks. Hey, Mike. We're Mike, freelancing Mike, here, Mike. but but th- I think we may be touching on something. Mike, I will just ask you this question: If you, you know, gave sodium pentothal to thirty-one other owners and took a a, a closed vote and asked the question, how many of you would like to have a new owner of the Washington Football franchise? I bet pretty sure. I bet pretty clearly that there would be a majority that would say yes, if only out of uh, out of we're being hamstrung in one of the hottest pro football markets in the United States. We are being prevented from making the anywhere near the amount of money we could make, even if it's for that reason having nothing to do with the morals of it. But, but that is why, you know, when you, when you talk about that, and I get it, and I get tying it all to Goodell, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat on your side in this, but I just think morally, more than anything else, that's where there needs to be a reckoning right now in the NFL. Uh, and, and you have to say, what, what do we stand for, really? You know, what, what do we stand for? Okay, we'll put up with people on the halftime show. Or, you know, I'm joking, obviously. You know, but, but really, what do we stand for here? And, and I think that is what's lacking in the NFL right now. I predict that one or both of Daniel Snyder and Stephen Ross are going to get pushed out because this is an effort to try to, number one, placate the people who are becoming more and more intent on seeing real change happen in the NFL and also to try to apply some guardrails to the rest of the owners. That we may be at a point where not even the league office can control what the owners are doing. Some of them. Some of them. Not all of them, but some of them. If the allegations regarding Ross and Snyder are true, then they deserve the scrutiny. But Maybe they need to begin to rebuild some semblance of a moral compass, at least create the impression that they have one somewhere in the back of a drawer. But one way to do that is to dump a couple of these owners and try to scare the other ones who need to be scared straight to scare them straight. One more point on Brian Flores before we take a break. He is out of the Texans. We reported this back during the Super Bowl pregame show. The Texans were getting a ticket to the party because – They failed to hire Brian Flores, according to Flores, in retaliation for the lawsuit he filed. And the evidence here, Peter, and again, nobody's ever going to admit to this, but the evidence is very, very fishy. There were three finalists for the job. Brian Flores, Jonathan Gannon, Josh McCown. Gannon, the Eagles defensive coordinator, drops out. It's down to Flores and McCown. Flores and McCown. Who's it going to be? And between the two, it was no, I mean, look, I love Josh McCown. It's the guy's never coached. The guy's never coached, and Flores was a coach for three years in the NFL. So what happens? What happens? In comes Levy Smith out of nowhere as the head coach of the team. That in and of itself reeks. It reeks. And Brian Flores' argument is the only reason he didn't hire me is because I filed this lawsuit against the NFL. So now the Texans are part of it, too, and obviously they deny it. They all deny it. Nobody's going to come out and say we did it. It's going to go to litigation and arbitration ideally for the nfl but uh that's part of this now too the texans not hiring brian flores and people are going to be confused because they're going to say well they hired a blackhead coach this isn't about race 
This is about shunning Brian Flores because he had the audacity to stand up for himself. And look, you know, someday, somehow, some way, there will be a deep dive into into that, you know, into the Lovey Smith uh, ascension, very fast ascension. When I talked to Lovey Smith after this happened, uh, he told me at the time, he said, well, how do you know I wasn't a candidate? And when you work for an organization, when you work for an organization, you were putting your candidacy uh, on display every day. And I forget, it was a, you know, a flippant response, you know, that I had, but it was something, you know, like, well, they sure kept it quiet if, if, if you were a candidate. And I think that the Houston Texans almost certainly didn't want to hire Brian Flores after what happened. And they knew they couldn't hire Josh McCown in this environment. And so they went with a guy who they knew and they felt comfortable with, and that's Lovey Smith. You know, the ironic part of this is, you know, and, and there have been people uh, in the last few weeks since Lovey Smith got this job, you know, who when talking about it, they say that, you know, what's really weird about this is that Lovey Smith is actually a very good pick for this team at this time, for this reason. He went and coached in two places that were going to be very hard to win because you didn't have a quarterback, you didn't have enough players, and that's Tampa Bay and then Illinois in the Big Ten. And so now he's going to get to come to a team that also is not in position to win. But he has had experience in coaching in very difficult circumstances and and I'm not saying that's why they hired him. I'm saying that, in my opinion, there's a lot of people in the league who think that maybe Lovey Smith isn't the guy who you're going to win a Super Bowl with, but that Lovey Smith is a good coach to get you out of the morass that the Houston Texans are in. The bottom line is Flores contends that if he hadn't filed the lawsuit, he would have been the coach or the decision to not hire him was influenced in whole or in part by his lawsuit. And Peter, we got to go to break, but I'll just say this on the way out the door. If Brian Flores doesn't file his lawsuit right now, the head coach of the Houston Texans is Josh McCown. And right now the head coach of the Miami Dolphins is Sean Payton. And right now or soon the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins is Tom Brady. Take that to the bank. We'll take a break we got plenty more PFT Live still to come. We'll be right back. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today.